No, we are, we're excited that you're here. We, it's actually, we are into week six of this journey through the book of Ephesians in a little series that we're calling um, the Gospel of Grace. It's really an exploration of not what we consider one of the Gospels in terms of letters, but the Gospel in terms of the euangelion, which is a Greek word for good news. This sort of overwhelming, incredible news that comes from knowing Jesus is our Savior and Redeemer. And Paul's deep love for the church in Ephesus, and now he is calling them to remember that they are to be celebrating and living this incredibly full life in which they have been given in Christ. And there is a church that we are called together as reconciled believers to take this gospel into the world. So we've been exploring that for the past six weeks or so, and we are still in the middle of that. And so uh, we are excited about it. It's going to be a great series. It's going to be a slow series for us because we're working through just a few verses at a time and really taking it into a depth and a deep level and then kind of unpacking it with some takeaways that I think are very practical for our, our life that we can kind of live with. So it's not so much like we did with Hebrews where we took these bigger kind of larger sections of text and wrestle with them, broke them down. We're looking at the intricacies of each of these verses in a word by word. Sometimes we're only making it through one verse or two a week. And so this morning we're going to actually be in three. Um, and we're going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter one and verse 15 as we kind of explore the way that Paul makes a little personal turn in this letter. And it's kind of fitting because it is personal. And Paul's going to remind us this morning that the church is made of a people who we love and deeply care about. And we want to celebrate their moments of celebration, and we want to uh, rejoice with them. We also want to be at a place where the things that break their heart break ours. And so because of that, because we're not just this robotic body of people that comes in here every week to entertain you and, and ask you to, to like it and then leave, but we care about each other and we, we want to be involved in sort of spiritual growth, the things that matter in your life matter in ours. And so one of the milestones or things that we have happening this week is one of our dear families, Addison and Andrew Vite, they're moving, and we're sad about that, right? They're excited and great, and we're excited for the future that they have, but he's got a job with uh, the mothership, Walmart, in Bentonville, and they're going to be headed that direction, and so this may be their last. I don't know if you're here next Sunday. I can't remember. I know the moving trucks from Walmart. I think they have access to some trucks over there, next, so next Sunday, but if you see them, they're sitting right there. They've been a bar- part of our, our family for quite a while, and, and Addison has been kind of running our coffee movement. She's been the one that supplies, all. we call her the coffee czar. She's the one that supplies the coffee or has been for each week. And so they've been a big part of our community. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a sad thing that they're moving on, but we're excited. We know that God has got great things in store for them. So if you see them this week, tell them how much you love them. Because this church, this community, as we're going to also see Paul tell us, is made up of people that we love and care about. And so it's not really about what unfolds just with you on a Sunday morning. It's about getting your life entangled in the lives of other people to where the things that they celebrate, you celebrate. And the things that breaks their heart, break yours. It's why we share our prayer requests so uh, importantly on a monthly basis with each other so that we can ride the ebbs and flows and pray together and care about each other's spiritual lives. And that's where Paul is beginning to take us in this letter. He's beginning to move us from this real long sort of extended prayer that we've been talking about for the past four weeks that's got no punctuation or Remember, it's this big, long doxology that goes from verse 3 all the way through verse 14, where he's kind of unpacking this God is the most important thing, and it's this sort of liturgical prayer that Paul has in there. He's going to put the brakes on that. He's going to turn it deeply personal for a moment. He's going to remind the church why he loves them. And it's a great time for us this morning to ask ourselves several questions about our own relationship with the local church, 
and what's important for us as a community. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in 15, 16, and 17 this morning as we kind of take that concept and see what, how it works and fits into the cracks and crevices of our lives. So before we do that, let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity this morning to open your word, to engage in this incredible letter, to take a glimpse into Paul's relationship with the church in Ephesus, to be reminded of his not only deep love for them, but his deep love for the church in general, for the saints, for those that have been saved and sealed and marked by the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we have this call to love the church. And Paul certainly modeled that well. Take a moment in your own heart, just as you sit here this morning, and for the next few moments, just ask the Lord that he would, just that he would teach your heart, that he would instruct you, that he would do whatever it is that he needs to do in you, just that he would have your whole heart. Pray that God would teach you this morning. Just whisper those things in your heart. And as we do each week, take a moment and pray for someone around you. Maybe it's your spouse, a child, a friend, a family, or just someone you've maybe even never seen before. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. Be in the habit of caring deeply for who they are. Ask the Lord to teach them, to meet them, to comfort or to convict them. Whatever it is, just, just pray for them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray for the people around you this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask you to teach us through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly. And so, God, we pray that you would instruct us and teach us, correct us, discipline us, empower us, Lord, all that we might know you better. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're taking a shift, right? We've been for four weeks looking at those verses, 3 through 15, this sort of long prayer. And it's really powerful because Paul kind of bookends it without putting any punctuation there. He bookends it with a little bit of an intro and then this subtle transition into something deeply personal. And so we're going to see this letter take a little bit of a, of a shift here as Paul begins to introduce himself really for the first time in a really personal way, not just saying, hey, it's, it's Paul the Apostle. He's saying, look, I love you and I care about you. This is the reason why I've been praying these things so deeply for you, the things that we've been exploring over the past, uh, past four weeks. And so it's going to take a little bit of a personal turn. But before I get there, let me just remind you real quickly about Paul's relationship with the church in Ephesus, just for those of you that maybe weren't here week one, because I think we did this in week one. Let me remind you about this relationship because it's a little bit different than the relationship Paul's had with his other churches. Now, you may remember, as I talked about, Paul first came in contact with the church in Ephesus or with the Ephesians on his way back from Corinth on traveling to Jerusalem. And he stopped over there and he left a, a couple of his traveling partners, Priscilla and Aquila, and they were teaching in, uh, in the synagogues there. And Paul traveled back to Jerusalem because he had some business to attend to. But he had an encounter with the Ephesians that he told them that he would always be coming back. And so as a man of his word, when he returns from Jerusalem, he passes through Ephesus on his way to Macedonia, and he spends an unbelievable amount of time there. And I say unbelievable because most of Paul's time in these places on his missionary journeys were short-lived. A few months here uh, at a time, or maybe just a couple of weeks, and he made these little journeys, and he'd, he'd start preaching in the temple, and he'd kind of plant a church, and he'd leave some leadership, and he'd move on. 
We had a real extended stay in Ephesus. In fact, for three months, Paul went to the synagogue every day, and he would teach, and he would debate, and he would kind of engage with the Jews there until they got fed up with him and they kicked him out. And so then for the next year and a half, Paul went right down the street to this lecture hall of a guy named Tyrannus, which maybe Tyrannus, I don't know how you say it. Tyrannus sort of sounds like Tyrannosaurus Rex, but either way, he had a lecture hall for some reason, and Paul was there for a year and a half every single day, and people would gather and he would teach. All right, And so when he leaves, he leaves Timothy some two years of his time invested there. So for all practical purposes, the Ephesians are one of the most educated churches in all of Paul's sort of students of churches, if you will. So in all these little churches that he's planted, Ephesus may be the most educated. I mean, imagine having the Apostle Paul teach you on a daily basis, right? It doesn't get a whole lot deeper or better than that, right? And so, so they had this sort of prized relationship with Paul. So Paul's writing this letter under house arrest in Rome, waiting to stand trial before Caesar, knowing he most likely is going to die, even though he tells him in his letter he hopes to return. I think Paul knows from other things that he's written that this may be the end, but if it's not, then he hopes to return to Ephesus to deliver some things in person. But he writes this letter from house arrest saying, look, you know all there is to know. I just want to remind you of who you are. Now go and be the church. Go and be the reconciled group of believers. Be the church in the world. And so it's got this special kind of relationship with them that is more like teacher to student and go. Paul's letter to the Philippians is more like, you know, this deep sort of love family thing. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is more like, I've invested in you, and now you've got to invest in the world, right? And so we have this neat relationship, and Paul's going to inter- intersect himself or introduce himself back into this equation in verse 15. And this is what he says. So for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus, or the, the asking that God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. So we obviously have this little pickup where he says, for this reason, which ties us back to verse 13 and 14. All right. So Paul's going to make this little connection. Verse 13 and 14 are important because he basically says, listen, you have heard the word of life. You have responded in belief. You have been saved. You have been marked and you have been sealed. All right, that's what he's talking about in 13 and 14. He says, you are saved. The word has come to you. You have heard it. You have believed it. You have been marked. You have been sealed. You have been chosen by God. Therefore, for this reason, because you are saved and part of this community of saints, right? Paul says, for this reason, I'm getting ready to tell you some incredible things that I feel about you and that I want you to feel towards each other. So that's the for this reason, because they are the church. Paul is addressing and talking to the church specifically and intentionally in this moment. So because you have heard the word, you've responded in faith, you have been marked and you have been sealed, you are saved for this reason. Man, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, and I have not stopped remembering you in my prayer. See, what we see initially is that Paul loves the church. Loves the church. The church, big C, which is all those that call themselves and have been called saints, which we'll get to in a moment, um, that are under this blanket of marking and covering of the Holy Spirit that have surrendered their life and belief to Jesus and that are a part of the community of believers. Paul loves the church, which includes all the other communities in which Paul has been a part of planning and those that he hasn't. 
Anyone that is saved is part of the assembly, the ecclesia, the church, the movement. Paul loves the church. But Paul also loves the church in the small gathering, the little C, if you will, in our Western idea, in the particular church, the church in Ephesus, the house groups, the gathered people, the small families. Paul loved the church. And you can hear it kind of in his words, right? Like, he doesn't say it explicitly, but if you, you can kind of read it into it, it says, for this reason, because you've been saved and marked and sealed, I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints. I have not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you in my prayer. So Paul says, since you've been saved and you've been sharing the gospel, even as I'm not there, as I'm traveling and the word is moving, it's propagating, it's happening, life is flowing, because that's happening, I'm so excited. Like, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. I have not stopped remembering you in my prayers. I am moved by you because I love you. I spent all this time with you, but more so, I'm so blessed that you are thriving, that your faith is growing, right? That you love the saints. In other words, you love the church also. Paul loves the church. And he had this sort of moment where it was like, man, I love these people and they are growing well. It was sort of like one of those incredible woohoo kind of like moments where he heard a report that the church that he loved in Ephesus as he's sitting in house arrest was doing well, which means someone probably traveled from Ephesus to Rome to share news with Paul. And they said, Paul, how are you doing? He's like, I don't know, it's kind of a bummer here. I don't have good food, but I'm, I'm all right. And they're like, well, the church in Ephesus is great. And Paul's like, yes, I love those people. I'm so thrilled that they're doing well. He loved the church. And you get this sense in Paul's kind of, kind of picture of the world and how he loved the church. That they're, in the first century, they had their issues. The church was not perfect. Don't ever think that if you, if you go back, you go, man, we could just go back and be the first century church. It would be awesome. No, if you read these letters, the church, first century church was a wild hot mess, much the way that we are. But what you can say is that the first century church was much more attached to being on one team than we are in the Western world some 2,000 years later. It feels very much like, if you're exploring the church in kind of Western America, that we are a whole bunch of different teams competing, on the, competing for the same pool of already saved people, right? I mean, if you think about it, most of us are just trying to simply outdo each other with fancier, shinier, new things, right? Like, well, we offer this for fourth graders. Oh, we have this for four and a half graders. You should see our half, our half grade class is freaking amazing. Oh, I love half grades. They're the best, or whatever. You know, or, and so, but even more so than that, you should hear the way we talk about other churches, right? The disdain that we come in, how we don't like their leadership or their preaching or their whatever, or their t-shirts, or they don't have t-shirts, or it's too hot or too cold, or they're too far, or whatever guy wears jeans, or he didn't wear any jeans, or whatever. Like it's just like we have these sort of movements that divide us into sections of people, and we talk about the church as if it's something we can part with or take on. Do you have a sense in Paul's kind of deep love for the church? It was like this. You're a saint. You're a believer. You're saved. Like you're on this team. And I think we would be well remembered to kind of adopt that attitude. Now, that's not to say this. Look, there are some bad churches. I'm not going to lie to you, right? Like the reality is there are some churches that have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There are some churches that exchanged good theology for bad, that have exchanged uh, good teaching for heretical teaching. There are churches that have exchanged the headship of Christ for the leadership of a celebrity, like that is very true. And there are churches that should close. But those are usually the exception. The reality is the majority of churches are people that are just trying to pursue Christ. And they're doing it the best way they know how, which isn't always great, because certainly we're not great. 
But that's why we make a habit of praying for the churches on our street and in our city and around the world because we are much more connected than we are separated. And you get this sense from Paul that he just found joy in the church. He loved it. He loved it when they thrived and it broke his heart when they broke. We know that because we can see it dripping in his sort of response, right? Like, man, I just have not stopped giving thanks for you. And so what does that cause him to do? So Paul's deep love for the church, big C and little c, what does it cause him to do? Well, it causes him to pray constantly and specifically. So listen to what that does. It says, ever since I heard, right, that you have been marked and sealed and believed and saved and chosen, all those kind of things that we talked about the weeks before, and, and that your faith in Christ and that you're loving the saints, in other words, that you're as in love with the church as I am, right? And that your love for the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you in my prayers. I have not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you in my prayers. So Paul says, I'm so moved by the fact that you are doing well and that you are growing and that things are happening and that you love the saints as I love the saints, right? That I am constantly moved to gratitude and to prayer. Now the word saints here is important. I think we should stop and mention it for a moment. We talked about this before, but I'll mention it again. We talk about the idea of saints. We're not talking about some group of people that has been morally selected by some council somewhere to which they have been deemed better or higher or more special or more spiritual than you, and therefore they have special access to God, and if we pray or seek them, they will give us some blessing here on earth. That is not biblical. Close the door on it. All right. The idea of a saint in terms of scripture comes from the Greek word hygos, which actually means to be set apart. Now, if you've been here very long, you've heard me often talk about the idea of being set apart, that as we are called to be holy, to be set apart, as saints we are set apart, not because of what we do or how we do it, but because Christ has called us, marked us, sealed us, and saved us. And we are called to be used by his holy purpose. Therefore, the church is made up of saints who have been called, saved, and redeemed, and set apart for the use of Christ. All right? So when we address the idea of saints, that means if you are saved, you are a saint. You are not morally perfect. You are redeemed. And therefore, you are part of this great cloud that makes up the church. And so when Paul says, I see of your love for the saints, he's not saying, hey, I see that you love those guys, special guys that do a couple of miracles, and we have some pictures of them. He's saying, look, you love the people of the church. And Paul says, because I'm so moved by that, right? Because I love that so much, I'm overflowing with gratitude for you. I, I constantly am grateful, and I'm constantly praying. And Paul prayed, right, because he loved the church, constantly and specifically for the church. And I don't think he's being tongue-in-cheek. I don't think he's like, oh, you know, I pray for you guys all the time. Like, I feel like Paul really constantly prayed for the church. He labored for them. We learn this in his other letters, the letters to Thessalonica, which we'll talk about again here in a moment. Paul labors for the church in which he, his love for them actually grows as he prays for them. Paul prayed constantly for the believers, stirred him. He was so grateful for them that he was specific. He wasn't just like, hey, Lord, uh, if you don't do anything, like if you could just throw some good vibes down towards Ephesus, they could really use it. Now, Paul labors for them. And it tells us here that he prays for two real things in his specific prayer. He prays for wisdom and he prays for revelation. 
So what do those mean? Well, it kind of brings us to our third idea here, which is Paul loved the church, big C and little C. Paul prayed, and he, he was grateful for them, and he prayed for them constantly and consistently. And the third thing in that is Paul cared more about their growth than he did about their comfort. So listen to what he prays for. He says, ever since I heard about this, I have not stopped praying for you, right, giving thanks for you. And remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So here's what he says. He says, because of all the things that are happening and because I love you so much, I'm praying constantly and specifically for you, and I'm praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation. Now here's the thing. Life in the first century as a believer was hard. I mean, life today is hard. Don't get me wrong. We'll get, we'll get to that. But life is hard then. Persecution was extremely real. You may be the first person in your entire family to ever surrender your life to Christ, and that would cause you most likely to be kicked out, to be removed, to be removed from the community, especially as a Jew, if you gave your life to Christ. You were no longer invited to festivals, to events, to things, to community gatherings. You were shunned. You were outcast. That's just when the context of your family and community. But most likely living in a Roman province, it means it would cost you your very life or freedom. What Nero was doing in the first century to believers was horrific. Horrific. The stories that you were taught and raised in school on being thrown into to the, the gladiatorial rings and, and lion's dens and things like this, those are very real things that Nero was doing to execute Christians for one reason, to make an example out of those that would say there is only one God. See, the, the Romans didn't hate Christians because they were Christians. The Romans hated Christians because they said there was one God and the Romans had thousands. And so because the Romans believe that the Christians, rightly so, said there is only one God, therefore you need to die. And so every day as a first century Christian might be the day that you gave your life for your belief in Christ. Life is hard. Not to mention many of those Jewish believers that were living in Roman-occupied territory or Gentile believers that were living in these territories were living in poverty. A lot of those areas were war-torn. The Romans didn't just come in and peacefully take over lands. They came in and devastated places, left a ruin, a wake of just destruction, and then they would put in their government and you would be left to fend for whatever was there. It was a really hard time to live persecution was real. The social stigma of following Christ was real. You're living in an oppressed place, right? And so here's what Paul prays for them. Man, you're dealing with all those things. Life is hard. And Paul says, God, I love these folks. They're so amazing. I'm so grateful that their church is growing and that they're, 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 uh, they're coming to know you and they love each other. In fact, he tells the Ephesians, he says, I love you so much. And I know you're struggling, but here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for wisdom, right? And I'm going to pray for revelation. And someone out there raised their hand like, hey, how about uh, praying that we don't die, maybe? Or that mom lets me come to Thanksgiving. Like something that's tangible, right? So why does Paul pray for wisdom and revelation as opposed to praying for their needs? Now, I'm not saying that Paul doesn't pray for their needs. If he prays for them all the time, there's a chance he's praying for much other, other things, right? Surely. But in this moment, he tells them, right now, as you face and as you walk, I am praying for wisdom and revelation. Why is that? Because Paul knew the most important thing that we have in this life is to know Christ, period. And we don't know Christ on our own. 
We only know Jesus because he reveals himself to us. We cannot discover God on our own. God reveals himself to us. It's all throughout scripture. Our minds will never get us to the place where God is. God has to reveal himself to humanity. And so Paul says this, in the midst of everything you're walking through, what I want God to show you is himself. I want him to reveal wisdom and truth. Why? One specific reason, and it's beautiful, that you might know him better. Paul doesn't pray for relief. He doesn't ask God to give them a break. He doesn't ask for the oppression to stop. He doesn't ask for persecution to end. He doesn't pray that their families would accept them. He doesn't pray for financial relief. He doesn't pray for anything except they might know Christ more. Paul cared more about their growth than he did their comfort. Yes, he could have easily labored over that prayer going, hey, listen, I know life is hard, and I am fighting for you with the Lord, and I am praying that God would make life easy for you, that the hardships you've walked through would go away, and that you would have a year or two of smooth sailing before you're killed. He just says, man, I hope God shows you more of himself so that you would know him better. And this blows me away, right, because this is what none of us want. What none of us want. I'll tell you why in a second. So here's what Paul says. Paul says, church that I love and care for, that I spent so much time with, the people that I love, like because you've been saved and sealed and marked and chosen, like I am overjoyed and I love you. Like I really, really love the church. As messy as it is, and Paul knew the mess of the church. Just read 1 Corinthians. It's a mess. Read Galatians. They're, they're, they're full of messes, but he loved the church and he loved them so much that he prayed specifically and constantly for them and cared more about their growth than he did their comfort. That's how you know you truly love someone, right? When you want their growth and not their comfort or when you pray for them constantly and specifically. Because of this, Paul teaches us a couple of things in here, even though maybe they're not directly for us. I think they're beautiful takeaways, right? And the first thing that I I walk away after looking at all these things, I was thinking about this just kind of my own heart and my own life, is, is really this simple idea that we should care less about ourselves and more about others, right? That sounds pretty simple. Like, be less about yourself and more about other people. And it sounds really simple, but it's actually really hard. I think you can do this in two chief ways, right? Two ways that we can be more about or less about ourselves and more about people. And the first is that we can find joy in and with other people. And this sounds really easy on paper, right? But it's actually really hard. Because when those things keep happening to people, right? You read on Facebook that, you know, their husband got another promotion or whatever, or, you know, they got another new car and she's got, took a selfie or he took a selfie and it's just enough to see the bottom end of the Mercedes logo, but not the whole logo. And you're like, oh, oh good for them. New job, half a Mercedes apparently, and, you know, whatever. And you, you begin to just sort of develop this, Man, why does nothing good really happen for us? Another vacation, another thing. Like, We oftentimes don't find great joy or celebrate in the lives of others because we've been jaded by a lot of the ways that we see the world, especially through the lens of social media. But the church really is called to find joy in and with other people. Like the things that happen to other people that are, that are wonderful, we, we want them to be wonderful for you. And the things that break their hearts, we want them to break ours. Like that's how interwoven we should be as a community. And so when you begin to truly love like that, right, particularly for the saints, when you, when you are less about yourself and more about others, right, then you can find joy in the things that bring them joy. 
And then you can truly be encouragers in that. So you can find joy in those things, and you can be encouragement to others. Think about this for a moment. Like, what do you think it meant to the Ephesians to get a letter from Paul? I mean, for us, that's not that big a deal, right? But if you think about 2,000 years ago, writing a letter was not an easy task. You had to find paper or papyrus or whatever. You had to find some kind of, some bird had to drop its feather or whatever. And you had to have some kind of ink, which was not easy to come by. Meanwhile, Paul's in prison, by the way. You had to hand write it out. And then you had to deliver it or have someone deliver it, which was probably the hardest part of the entire process. You couldn't mail it. You literally had to walk it 600 plus whatever miles through bandits and wolves and bears and oh my or whatever, and like literally through all those things to give it to this person that's like, oh man, a letter. That's fantastic. And then you open it up and the whole community gathers around and Paul says this, I love you guys. Like I'm so excited for you. And I've been praying. Can you imagine what that would feel like as a church? This guy that you had spent two years with, who you loved and respected and who taught you, had just taken the time to write you a letter, have it delivered thousands of miles, to open it up and have him say, I am praying for you. This is not the same as writing happy birthday on someone's Facebook wall. It's not the same. It's not even close, right? Are you an encouragement to people? Like real, really? Like, are you someone that champions other people? Like, takes the moment when you know something's great happened to them and you send them a note or you make a phone call or you do something that just says, I'm so, I'm so excited for you guys. Like, or I know you're going through a really difficult time. We care about you. We want to bring you food. Or we want to just let you know that we like you a real encouragement to other people. Because this is how you care more about other people and less about yourself. You stop making things about you. And in our culture, we make everything about us. Right? So what Paul tells us and what we learn from him is if we're truly going to love the church, big C and little c, then we have to be less about ourselves and more about others, especially the saints. Like really care about the people around you, right? Find joy in what they find joy in and be an encouragement. Like this is just an easy, straightforward takeaway. The next thing that we see kind of in that is really echoing what Paul does, which is praying constantly and specifically for people. Now, if you ever loved someone truly, like really been given this thing where you really love someone, you, you drop all that you have and you want to pray for them all the time and you want to engage in their lives and you want specific things for them. This, of course, happens when you have children, right? Happened to me. I'm sure it happened to those of you that have kids out there. From the moment you hear that this thing is moving, go to that ultrasound, right? And you can see these heartbeats or these little eyes or these, these little fingers or you see this little thing beginning to form in there. There's this thing inside of you that says, no way. Like I am overwhelmed with gratitude. God, how can you do this and make this? And and I'm responsible for this. Like I've made people. Like I have this thing that is now up to me to raise and love and care for, and I want specific things for it. And as that that baby literally breathes its first breath, you begin to think about who it's going to be and what it might do and the kind of man or woman you want it to be when you raise it and the kind of person they're going to develop to be in their character and you want them to know Jesus and who are they going to marry and what it's going to look like and how are they going to get through this, whatever. And you begin to pray specifically over your kids because you love them so dearly. Because you don't want them just to exist. You want them to thrive. You want them to be fully alive. You want them to be emotionally and physically and spiritually healthy. You want them to be people of impact. You want them to live lives that matter. And more so, you want them to be whole. And so you pray specifically. And you pray constantly. Right? 
even in those difficult days. And your heart breaks when their heart breaks. When they go through difficulty, it shatters your heart. When they celebrate, you feel like this thing you've just won, like it's this incredible thing that's almost impossible to describe. And I deeply believe this is what Paul feels for the church. Like he loves those people so much. The reality is that we're more usually annoyed by the people in our church than we are entangled with them, right? We get frustrated. We get easily, um, you know, kind of annoyed with the things they say and the things that they do. And so laboring constantly in prayer and specifics for them is hard. And other believers as well, even like your mom or your dad or your sister, that person that you're just like, man, here's an exercise for you. You've got some church hurt, or you've got some people in your life that are hard, or if you've got some other folks in your life that you just don't really connect with well, or you just don't kind of rub well with, pray for them. And I'm not saying pray that God shows them that you're right. That's not the same thing. Lord, I just pray that you would show them the error of their ways. No, I mean pray for their wisdom and the revelation of the Spirit. Pray that God would show them himself and that they would know him better. Because Paul does something incredible, we learn in the, in the letter to the Thessalonians. He says that as he's praying for the church in Thessalonica, his love for them increases. Now, they've done nothing different, but as he prayed for them, God increased his love for them. Why? Because I think as that happens, you begin to entangle your lives with other people. A year ago, we engaged in this thing we called the Advent Prayer Campaign, which is just an intentional process for us to pray for each other. And the idea was born out of Paul's interaction with the church in Thessalonica, which he said, as I prayed for you, I began to essentially love you more. As you pray for people, specifically and constantly, your love for them increases because the things that they're laboring through or dealing with matter to you. It's why we pray for other people when they're going through struggles and we celebrate when they come out the other side. Because all of a sudden I feel like I've been at least by your side or at war with you or in this thing together. Even though I haven't had to walk in those same things, I've been with you. We're really, really bad at this. I mean, we say we pray for other people, but truthfully, most of us are just liars. We don't mean to be, but we are. We say, yeah, I'll pray for you, and then it never happens. Or we may give that token prayer right before we fall asleep or, you know, remember this. But very seldom do we labor. Do we take time to journal those things or write them out so we won't forget or take the intentional process of saying, every day I'm going to pray for this person because I told them I would and I want to. Like we've got to be better at praying constantly and specifically for people, right? So... We, we've got to have this part of us that's, that's less about ourselves and more about others and is constantly and specifically praying for people. And be convicted, right? Like, love the church. The truth is, if you've left two or more churches in the past two years, it's probably not the church. We have got to be at a place where we die to ourselves and become more about other people, right? And so, and this is the last little thing here in which Paul does, which I think is more personal than it is for doing something for someone else, is fall in love with the idea of knowing Jesus better, right? And not just being comfortable. So here's the reality of my life. 
like you, my life is not always easy, right? There are complications and difficulties and struggles, and we've had our fair shares of ups and downs, and life has been hard here or there. We've watched our kids go through heartache. We've struggled financially. We've moved. We've had people that love us and people that hated us. We've had all these things, and life is hard, and it's stressful, much like yours, no different than anyone else's. At any given time in my life, my desire is usually most often God make these things go away. I want relief. When life is tough, I want relief. I want God to come in and just take it away. God, remove this burden, remove this barrier, free this financial pressure, make this thing happen. Give me one easy day, one good day. Fix this person, heal this, make it better. My prayer life is very little, very often not. God, give me wisdom to know you more. And in, in theory, if you are to give you two choices, know Jesus more or have a really comfortable life, Jesus more should win in a landslide. But in reality, when no one's looking, I always choose, give me easy, give me comfortable. I'll figure this one out later. I don't want to live in this place any longer. And that's why most of us live in spiritual mediocrity. That's why most of us go from Sunday to Sunday and barely crack a Bible and barely pray and are hardly moved by God. Because we are content with living a life in which we have this knowledge of Jesus, but we're pursuing things that make it easy. Paul knew it was the great trap of the Christian life. And so he looks at the church and he says, I'm not praying for relief. I'm going to pray that you would know him better. Because knowing him better actually makes these things manageable. And not only does it make them manageable, it makes them part of our incredible journey of perseverance and maturity. In other words, God uses these things to show us how great he is when we are pursuing knowing him better. God, whatever the world brings, whatever life unfolds, whatever difficulties I face, I want you to show me why and how you are working so that I can know your heartbeat. Even when devastation hits my family, I want to know you more. I know you are here. I'm not going to ask for the easy and the free. I want to know you better. Fall in love with the idea of knowing Jesus better and not pursuing the comfortable and the easy. It doesn't mean you can't have those. It just means this is goal number one. So that when tragedy, struggle, difficulty, hard things hit, school's overwhelming, life is overwhelming, the financial world is crumbling, someone walks out of your life, like whatever it is, the immediate is not God take it away, but it's saying, God, show me how I can know you. Give me wisdom. Reveal yourself to me. I want to know you better. As much as I long for this pain to go away, I want to know you better. It's a tough prayer, but it's the one. And that's what Paul's getting to with his letter here. He says, listen, I love you guys. I love the church. I love the fact that you've been saved and marked and sealed. And because of that, I'm praying constantly and specifically for you. And not that life would be easy, but that you would know Jesus. And the takeaway for you and, and myself is really similar, which is, look, be more about people than you are about yourself. Find joy where they find joy. Like, care deeply about them. Be an encouragement to people. Be less about you. Pray for people. Tell them you'll pray and actually pray for them. And be specific in your prayers. They ask you to pray that God would heal them. Pray that God would heal them. And personally, fall in love with the idea of knowing Jesus better. And that's been my prayer this whole week. It's just, Jesus, I just want to know you better. The world is going to tell me to make it 
choose relief, didn't choose the easy, or to at least pursue it, try and relieve the pressure. But instead of doing that, I just want you to show me yourself. And by knowing you, relief comes in a very different way. It comes through life, wholeness, healing, perfection, in Christ, not in the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity just to gather in this place together and look at a few verses that uh, are really simple on the outside but incredibly complex to live and to kind of act in. But here's the truth. The church is a special place, not because of anything we've done, but because you have knit us together in Christ. This should be the place that we can go for care and comfort, for conviction and for support. It should be the place that we can go and be ourselves and bear our deepest burdens and be accepted the most. It also should be a place, Lord, that we go where people will tell us the truth, that will hold us to a standard of God's word, that will pray as Paul did for revelation and wisdom so that we might know you better and not just tickle the ears of what we want to hear. But in all that is draped in love for the saints. Lord, my prayer is simple this morning, and that is I pray that the folks in this place would fall in love with the idea of knowing you better, that that would change the way they think about their own lives, that would change the way they think about the church, change the way they interact with the world. I pray that for myself, that I would just simply want to know you better, less about me, more about other people. Be a man or a woman of prayer. Fall in love with the idea of knowing Jesus as we close our time in worship this morning, I encourage you to, to stand and sing with us and, and offer those prayers to the Lord. Like if God is convicting something on your heart, pressing that into you, listen to it. Ask God to show you how he can use it for great, how he can maybe pull it out of your heart, how he can free you. Ask for wisdom and revelation that you might know him better. If you don't have answers to a problem in your life today, that's okay. Pray for wisdom. Pray that God would show himself to you. Pray that in the midst of that, you would know his heart. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.
these things and we can go, man, that's, that's pretty good. Paul's a pretty good writer. God's a pretty good God. Like, that's awesome. Glad I came today. Or we can allow them to impact our lives and change the way that we interact with the world. That we would say, I truly want to become someone that loves people, that cares less about myself and more about them, especially the saints, that becomes a man or woman of prayer and that is in deep pursuit to know Jesus better. Make those truths part of who you are and who you want to be. Go in peace.